You're listening to a service of Holy Baptism from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Today's sermon will be delivered by the Very Reverend Philip Jensen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us this day by what I say by our minds and our hearts listening to your word to see Jesus as he really is and we ask for it in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. And uh, thank you very much for the uh, privilege of coming and sharing with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you have been told, and as you can clearly hear from my lack of accent, I come from a different land than yours. But our two great nations have much in common, not the least that ours was started because yours broke free from a country we haven't broken free from yet. We share together many things, in particular democracy, and we're both having national elections this year. Oh joy. Though it's quite different in Australia. For example, we have compulsory voting in Australia. All citizens have to vote. If you don't vote, you get fined. And if you don't pay your fine, you get put in prison. But as a colony that was made up of convicts, we're used to that. <laughs> Australians take seriously the great principles of democracy. Never trust a politician with anything. We know the dictum that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So for us, democracy is the best form of government because it restricts and distributes power in the government in such a fashion as to prevent anybody from doing anything under any occasion. <laughs> and furthermore, it enables us to get rid of our rulers peacefully without a revolution, which is lovely. Australians are not interested in voting somebody into office who will make the world a better place. We're much more interested in voting somebody out of office so as to avoid them making the world a worse place. Ponder it. Who would you give power to, real power to, permanent power to, the kind of power that could be never taken away from them? We don't want a government like that. There's no Australian I know that I would trust with any power like that. Well, enough of this warm, fuzzy introduction to the deep-seated cynicism of Australians. We are very different, aren't we? Let's turn to our Bibles, which will be much more edifying, won't it? And back to the reading we had first up from Revelation chapter 1. We don't have page numbers, but if you turn back, you'll find it there. It was the first of our readings, and it's the one I'm going to deal with. And if you keep that open in front of you, you'll be able, I trust, to follow what I'm saying. It starts in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, like any ancient world Christian letter, it sends the greeting of grace and peace. 
wishing us generosity and mercy, health and prosperity, welfare. And this grace and peace comes from God, which is not surprising because God is the source of all good things, such as especially grace and peace. Here God is being described to us as him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. It's a way of saying God or ruler of the world and his complete spirit who executes his work in the universe, seven being the number of completion or completeness. But more than that, it alludes back to the God who called himself, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. The almighty self-defining God, I will be who I will be. Such self-definition in humans is the essence of sin. We want to be our own God defining ourselves. We want to run our own lives our own way. To be the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. But in John's description of God, there's a strange addition in verse 5. Strange to the ancient world, though not strange to Christianized ears, grace and peace also comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of grace and peace, for it is from Jesus that Christians receive the gracious mercy of God. And it's from Jesus that Christians come to peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with ourselves. This is explained to us in two ways. One, who Jesus is, and two, what Jesus has done for us. Who he is, is in verse 5a. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What he's done for us is in verse 5b and verse 6, which speaks of his love for us, the freedom he has won for us, and the kingdom he has made us into. Now let's look at those in a little more detail for a few moments. We start with who Jesus is, and he's described with these three terms. One, the faithful witness, because Jesus bore witness to the, and testimony to his Father. He bore it faithfully, even unto death, for bearing witness means standing up for the truth in the face of opposition and hostility. Secondly, he is the firstborn of the dead. Not just because he was the first to rise from the dead, but because he is the firstborn, that is, the heir, the owner. The idea of the firstborn is that of the heir and the owner of the estate. He's the older brother who owns and rules the dead, for he is the heir of the age to come. Thirdly, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, because in his death and resurrection, he's risen to sit at the right hand of God in all power and authority, as king of kings, as lord of lords, the unassailable ruler of the universe. Which leads John to ascribe glory and dominion 
the word for dominion is a word of power to him. So we read in 5b, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John not only acknowledges that he has all glory and dominion, John is here saying that he wants him to have all glory and dominion. He wants him to rule forever. He wants him to be the president for life, to be for eternity, his king, his prime minister, his governor, his ruler, to rule over us all in this world and in the world to come. This is the opposite of democracy. For if the essence of democracy is the capacity to peacefully get rid of our leaders, this is the request for a permanent king that we cannot get rid of, who will rule over us for all eternity. It's not just an Australian cynicism, it's the Christian understanding of sinfulness that teaches us the corrupting power of power, especially for the sinfulness of human heart. For there's no person we'd ever want to give glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Why then would John want to give a man glory and dominion forever and ever. Why is it that Christians, especially from democratic countries like yours and like mine, why do Christians who believe in democracy actually want a king to reign forever? Want to live under a lord and a master? The answer is found in what Jesus does. So look at the three things he does for Christians in the second half of verse 5 and in verse 6, as I read just a moment. Firstly, he loves us. He loved us back in Palestine in the first century when he gave his life for us. But he also continues to love us, for it's the present tense here in this verse, as our risen Lord and Saviour, interceding for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Politicians may tell us that they love us, but none of them lay down their lives for us. None of them will lay down their lives for those who don't vote for them. Secondly, he's freed us. Freed us from our sins by his blood. He freed us by his blood, that is his blood shed for us when he died his violent death as a sacrifice for our sins. We were in slavery to our sins. The slavery of addicts who do not seem able to change because they do not ultimately want to change. The slavery of captives serving their masters, self, and behind self, Satan. The slavery of prisoners who pay their penalty for sin, for the wages sin pays is death. The slavery of condemnation waiting to face the judgment day of the wrath of God. 
He freed us from all this slavery. By his death on our behalf and in our place, by his blood shed for us, by paying the penalty for our sin, as he turned aside the wrath of God. Ponder it. Those amongst us here who haven't yet yielded our life to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Ponder it, those of us who still are under the captain of our own soul, maybe naming the name of Christ in the formality of our nation, but still living under self-defined rule, still running our own life the way we want to run it. Why? Why do you live for yourself when Jesus, your creator, is the saviour and lord of all the universe? Why live for yourself when the end point of your life at its very best is a meaningless death and at its very worst is a facing of the wrath of God? So thirdly, the Christians, he made Christians a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He lovingly freed us from our sins that defile us and corrupt us, that enslave us to our sinfulness, our self-government, our self-centeredness. He freed us to make us the slaves into a kingdom. Not just any old kingdom, but his kingdom of priests. He turns the slaves of sin into the kingdom of priests to his God. He's transformed us like the slaves of Israel when they were in Egypt who became the kingdom of God, a nation of priests to serve God. Ponder it, my Christian friends. We were slaves who have been made a kingdom. We were sinners who by nature do not and by nature cannot please God, who have now been made priests to serve our living God in holiness and righteousness. What a privilege. What a blessing every believer in Christ has. For we are the priests of God who can approach God with no intermediary between us and God other than our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian is a priest of God. And then just when you think it couldn't get better... John speaks again of who Jesus is and what he does in the most extraordinary biblical terms. You see it there in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Hold on to your hats. This is something bigger and grander still. It's an Old Testament vision that I'm going to take a moment or two to explain to you. Unless, of course, you know the Old Testament and then you are already singing hallelujah in your heart. For you'll be standing and cheering when you hear who Jesus is. For John is saying, behold, look, there he is. Let me tell you who he is. 
The vision combines two extraordinary men who will appear on the day of judgment at the end of the world. The first is the Son of Man, coming with the clouds. This is the Old Testament vision of Daniel 7. It's a picture of heaven, Daniel 7, on the judgment day at the end of the world, when God, the Ancient of Days, opens up the books of judgment. And just as the judgment's about to happen, suddenly, out of nowhere, there comes a man riding in the clouds up to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days then gives to him all power to rule over all nations and all peoples for all time. Let me read it to you. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this son of man who will rule the world forever? Daniel and the Old Testament has no answer. But we, we can see the risen Jesus who repeatedly claimed to be the Son of Man, coming in the clouds to the Father, coming in clouds to the Ancient of Days, to the Father on high, and receiving from him all power to rule over all nations for all times as the King of Kings forever and ever. And this Son of Man is combined with a second man in verse 7, whom every eye will see and they will mourn for him, the one they have pierced, even those who have pierced him. It's an image from another Old Testament description of the final judgment, this time from Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, where we read... I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Again, it's a strange verse from the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, there's an anonymous man who is given rule over everything. In Zechariah 12, there's another anonymous person who speaks as if he is God. And yet, he's going to be pierced for some reason, pierced by the people of Jerusalem, to whom God gives a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that all the tribes of the land will mourn and grieve over this one whom they have pierced. The Old Testament doesn't explain who this God, who is a man, who has been pierced in Jerusalem, is. But Christians reading this, it's pretty obvious who this person is. This God, this man, who is pierced in Jerusalem, is both God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as it's through Jesus' death we come to repentance and forgiveness... 
for those of us who have just been through Easter, and I presume that's us, to think of the one who was pierced in Jerusalem and yet has risen in the clouds, it's not hard to see. For remember on the day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the land were cut to the heart and asked, what should we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of sins. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, neither Daniel 7 nor Zechariah 12 made much sense. And combined, they made even less sense. But Jesus knew and understood the scriptures. He understood they were referring to himself. For Jesus himself put these two verses together in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, as he talked of the judgment of the world in his own crucifixion. He said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Here then is Jesus, as the Old Testament predicted. Here then is Jesus, as he described himself. Here then is Jesus, as John saw him and wrote to his fellow Christians, Behold, look, there he is. This is the vision that we have of Jesus in the book of Revelation. He is God, the Son of Man, whom they pierced in Jerusalem, but has risen and on the clouds has come to become the King of kings and Lord of lords. And from him has come the spirit of grace and the pleas of mercy that has the people mourning for what they have done. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who is and who was and is to come. The Lord is almighty. So let's go back to the question of who you would like to have ruling over you. To whom do you want to ascribe glory, dominion, power, Forever. There's no politician. There's no leader that I would ever want to give such power and certainly not forever. They're all corrupt. They all live for themselves. If not corrupt before they come to office, they will be corrupted by the office they come to. We mustn't give to others all glory and power. Not for our sakes who live under them, not for their sakes who offer, that take hold of the office. We mustn't take it for ourselves in our own lives. All glory and power because we are not the rulers of our own lives. But John was clear that there was one to whom such glory, such power, such honour and dominion was both deserved and desirable. It's Jesus to whom we should give all glory and dominion forever and ever. He who laid down his life as a ransom for many, he's the one that you can trust with your life. But have you? Have you trusted him with your life? 
Do you now trust him with all the details and decisions of life? He's the Lord of all, the ruler of the kings of this world, but is he your Lord, your king, your ruler? Or are you still defining yourself? Still living your own life, your own way, just as you like? If you need to change government, don't vote for another sinner, especially yourself. But pray. That's how to change this government. Pray to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what should you pray? You should acknowledge your need for forgiveness. You should thank God that he sent his son and raised him in victory. And you should ask for forgiveness and change. I'm going to pray just like that right now and lead you in that prayer and invite you to pray it with me in the quietness of your own mind and heart and say Amen out loud. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rejecting you and ignoring you and I do need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler and king.